passage. In Mark chapter 10, we learn what Jesus knows about marriage, money, and work ethic. Marriage, money, and work ethic. Look at verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus arose from thence and cometh into the coasts of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again as he was wont, as he regularly did. And he taught them again. You know, Jesus was really patient. He would teach people a second time. Uh, Maybe maybe he already taught once and uh, you would think, well, they got the lesson. And sometimes a pastor will feel that way. You can ask Pastor Turner about that. You know, I, I already taught on this. Shouldn't shouldn't the congregation have it by now? But Jesus taught them again, probably some of the similar things or the same things that he had taught before. The religious leaders came to him and asked him in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, testing or tempting him? And divorce was a controversial topic in Jesus' day. And there were two main schools, two main schools of thought, and they were really focused on two of its most famous proponents. And one of them was Rabbi Hillel, and the other one was Rabbi Shammai. And Hillel, uh, Rabbi Hillel, his view was lenient, and so it was popular. He was saying, oh, you can divorce your wife for any reason. The, the, the Pharisees asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And uh, for, for any cause uh, was Hillel's view. It was lenient, it was popular, and Rabbi Shammai Shammai, he was strict and unpopular because he was saying there's no reason you should ever be separated. You're joined at the hip and you should always be together. And so is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees' question is clarified in Matthew chapter 9. Is it lawful, or 19 rather, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? What's so bad about it? What's so awful about it? We sometimes do that to justify our our own sins or our our own... uh, uh, unrighteousnesses will say, well, what's, what's wrong with doing this? What's wrong with smoking a blunt? What's wrong with getting a tattoo? What's wrong with going to these unsavory places or whatever? Well, what's right about it is honestly a better question. The debate centers here around this Mosaic law that gave permission for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because found some uncleanness, um, then divorce is fine. And so uh, you can have the certificate of divorce. The, the man will put it in her hand and send her out of his house. This is uh, basically uh, what they're looking at in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so the deba- debate among the rabbis tried to answer the question, well, what is uncleanness? And the strict Rabbi Shammai understood that uncleanness meant sexual immorality, and he said that was the only grounds for divorce. And lenient Rabbi Hillel, he understood uncleanness to mean any sort of discretion. For example, if uh, your wife, husbands, uh, burnt the breakfast and, and, and cooked breakfast in the morning and it was burnt and you didn't like that, that was grounds, legal grounds, to divorce your wife. Uh, If the wife spun in the streets, according to one commentator, if she talked to a strange man, if she spoke disrespectfully of her husband while the husband was present, if she was a brawling woman, you could hear her voice in the next house over, (laughs) then you could divorce her. Another wicked rabbi once wrote that if a man found a prettier woman, then that was legal grounds for divorce as well. 
And the Pharisees tried to get Jesus in a trap to speak against Moses or against the Talmud, against a popular thought. And so they hoped really to catch him in a trap. Look at verse 3. He answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said to them, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. Because your hearts were hardened towards God, he wrote you this law. But look at verse 6, the beginning of creation. From the beginning, God created male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall twain be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And so Jesus, God himself, emphasizes God's plan and emphasizes his plan in marriage. And according to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, Jesus and Moses together, really both, did not command divorce. Moses permitted divorce. And this went against the teaching of the lenient rabbi who taught that it was a righteous duty to divorce your wife if she displeased you in any way. The Mosaic law granting divorce was a concession to the hardness of the people's hearts. And so it was never commanded by God, but permitted because uh, of really to actually protect the divorced wife. And it was actually given as a protection to the wife who was being divorced. As written here, again, by another commentator, Moses permitted divorce, uh, providing a certificate of divorce was given to the wife. Its primary function was to provide the degree of protection for the woman who had been rejected by her husband. And now Jesus transitions now from a talk uh, from divorce to talk now about what is marriage. What is marriage? This is key. The problem was that they did not understand what God said about marriage, not so much divorce, but about marriage. This emphasis on marriage rather than divorce is a wise approach for anyone interested in keeping a marriage together. Divorce cannot be seen as an option when things are difficult. Marriage is like a mirror. It reflects what we put into it. Again, marriage is like a mirror. It reflects what we put into it. And so, um, and many people want to say, well, we live in different times, or uh, really the rules are different today. We need a modern understanding. But Jesus knew uh, the answers are only found in going back to the beginning. And we know that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, he created male and female. Male and female created he them. And so this one flesh relationship is both a fact and a goal. Like two animals yoked together, couples need to work together and head the same way to be joined the way God wants them to be joined. The bond between a husband and wife is stronger than a father and child or a mother and child. The marriage bond is stronger than siblings. Oh, and really, the law of God was that a man leaves his father and mother and, and uh, actually cleaves, leaves and cleaves to his wife and loves his wife as he does his own body in a complete union of interests an indissoluble partnership of life and fortune, comfort and support, desires and inclinations, joys and sorrows. Jesus reminded the Pharisees that uh, marriage is spiritually binding before God. In using the terms uh, join together and uh, separate, uh, uh, Jesus reminded us that divorce is really like amputation. Sometimes in the most extreme circumstances, amputation might be the right thing to do, but First, the patient must have a diagnosis worthy of such an extreme solution. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, a diagnosis worthy of such an extreme solution. Look at verse number 10. In the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And so they wanted some follow-up because this was going against what all the religious teachers were teaching. Jesus was teaching something unpopular. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And so this isn't a one-verse teaching of all there is to know about divorce and remarriage. Um, and so if there were, this was the only passage on divorce and remarriage uh, in the Bible, uh, that would be really, really strange. And we, we would say if anyone divorces for any reason, then they then commit adultery, and therefore God never permits uh, remarriage in the case of divorce. But really taking the whole counsel of God into account, it's impossible to say this. Uh, there are some that uh, neglect the whole counsel of God and say that God never allows remarriage after divorce. But when we see what the Bible says on the subject, we see that if a divorce is made on biblical grounds like adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, there is right to remarry. If you are not bound, you are free to marry in the Lord. Understanding the whole counsel of God on this subject frees people from the stigma of divorced in church. And so I read that just to say, you know, it can be very tricky, especially myself growing up. I used to maybe look upon someone who... who who was divorced, or, or, or I knew of someone who was divorced, and I, I would get nervous around that person because I, I didn't know, oh, can I really trust him? Uh, but God can forgive sin, right? And so um, th- th- there, are, there are circumstances that are difficult, and, and any time it's dealing with marriage and divorce, it can be a difficult situation. So we must allow bi- the Bible to be our guiding precept in all of this, okay? Uh, verse 13, they brought young children to him that they should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. When Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. And Jesus blesses the children and uses them as an example of how we must receive the kingdom of God. And the words suggest that they brought them to Jesus. The children were brought to Jesus for dedication. And so children love to come to Jesus and uh, to, to, to be in his presence. And uh, we know that the children loved Jesus and Jesus loved the children. And children don't like to be around sour people. Jesus was sweet. And so uh, because Jesus is uh, mag- magnetic to people and because children love to uh, be with Jesus, we should never block the way. We should never fail uh, uh, to, to provide them a way. We know more about Jesus than the woman of Judea did. Is there any good reason for us not to bring our own children to Jesus? This is a duty for volunteers and especially for parents. I really believe that the church uh, really should not be, or the teaching, of the, ch- the teaching of the church should not be a substitute for a godly family. The prayers and words of a parent can mean so much in the salvation of a child. I remember my mother uh, really praying for me and praying for uh, my, my, my sister and praying for my, my little brother to be saved. And, you know, I, I had prayed a prayer when I was seven, but I didn't really understand uh, what I had just done. And at age 13, I prayed again, and for real, actually this time, I accepted Christ as my personal uh, Lord and Savior. And I believe that's because of the faithful prayers of a loving mom and loving dad. Children are not only 
uh, uh, for blessing, but they are also examples of how we must enter the kingdom with a childlike faith, a childlike faith, not a childish faith. We must come to God with a faith that trusts God like a little child trusts his dad and leave all the problems up to the father. And the emphasis here is not that children are humble and innocent because sometimes they aren't, okay? The emphasis is on the fact that children will receive and don't feel they have to earn everything that they get. They are, they are willing and more than willing to accept a gift. And so children are in a place where often all they can do is receive. They don't refuse gifts out of self-sufficient pride. And so we, in the same way, we need to receive the kingdom of God as a little child because we will by no means enter it by what we do and what we earn. Look at verse 17. He was gone forth into the way, and there came one running. And he kneeled before him, and he asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus uh, said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. And so this title of good master was never applied to other rabbis in Jesus' day because it implied flawlessness, perfection. Now quickly, the Torah is the Jewish equivalent to the Old Testament. The Talmud is like a commentary uh, on the Torah by Israelite teachers that some Jewish people make equivalent to God's words. And so you got the Torah, you got the Talmud, and Talmud is just tradition, okay? The Torah, that's God's word, and the Talmud is just tradition. There is no instance in the whole Talmud uh, commentary of a rabbi being addressed as good master. And so only God was called good by the ancient rabbis. Why do you therefore call me good? And this was not Jesus denying his deity. Instead, he was inviting the young man to reflect upon it. Do you know what you're really saying? When you call me good. The focus of the man's question is what shall I do? I can do something to inherit eternal life. He thought eternal life was a matter of earning and deserving and not of relationship. And as he bowed down on his knees in front of Jesus, the mere closeness of that relationship made him closer to salvation than anything he could do. He was in the proximity of the person who could actually save him. But he didn't want Jesus to be his savior. He wanted Jesus to show him the way to be his own savior. And so the man also didn't know who he himself was. He thought that he was righteous and that uh, didn't, uh, he didn't really know uh, the kind of person he was. When you don't know who Jesus really is, you probably don't know who you are either. And knowing Jesus comes first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Verse 19, thou knowest the commandments. Now, here's the part that I want everyone to stand, okay? Let's stand. Let's do something a little different, okay? Wednesday night, let's stand. Let's stand. I want to teach you how to teach a Sunday school class. Are you ready? I'm going to teach you how to teach a Sunday school class. Now, they're the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. And what's shocking and surprising is that sometimes people will lament the fact, oh, we've taken down the Ten Commandments from the public schools. And they've taken public prayer out of the public schools, but we don't even know the Ten Commandments. If I I've had to ask for a raise of hands, who could tell me all the Ten Commandments just like that? I'm not sure anyone could. No, well, like I had trouble for the longest time. But here's a way, here's a way, hopefully it's not sacrilegious or anything, <laughs> but here's a way that can help you remember the Ten Commandments. 
Here's what I do to teach kids how to remember the Ten Commandments. This is commandment number one. Commandment number one. Say that with me. Commandment number one. God is number one. I just did this with the teenagers, and they remember. Yeah, you you knew what I was going to do. Commandment number one. God is number one. Commandment number two. Thou shalt not make any graven image or idol. Commandment number two. No bowing down. No bowing down. Can we do that together? Commandment number two, no bowing down. Commandment number three, commandment number three, this is really easy, class. Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. You should not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Watch your mouth. Commandment number three, class. Watch. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to make it holy. Now for children... This can be a little bit difficult. This is why I didn't want to be sacrilegious, because I don't want to take away from the meaning of remember the Sabbath day to make it holy, right? We want to remember that God should have one day a week, right? And to help kids remember the simple concept, uh, someone taught me many years ago, commandment number four, go to church. That's not exactly what it says, but just remember that. That, That's just to teach kids, okay? So commandment number four, go to church. What's commandment number one, class? Commandment number one? God is number one. Commandment number two? No bowing down. Commandment number three? Commandment number four? Commandment number five. Really easy. Honor thy father and mother. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Honor thy father and mother. Yes, sir. Can we do that? Commandment number five. Honor thy father and mother. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Commandment number six. The kids love this one. No killing. Bang. Commandment number six. Thou shalt not kill. No killing. Bang. Commandment number seven. It's written here. It's written here. Thou shalt not commit adultery. One man. Commandment number seven. One man. One woman. For life. Do that with me. Commandment number seven. One man. One woman. For life. Commandment number eight's really easy, class. Commandment number eight. There you go. Commandment number eight. Commandment number eight. No stealing. Commandment number eight, no stealing. Commandment number nine is just like commandment number three. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't tell lies. Commandment number nine, commandment number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't lie. And the kids really love number 10 because once once you've seen number 10, you'll never forget it. Commandment number 10, gimme, gimme, gimme. Don't covet. Everyone, I need everyone, so we can sit down. So we can sit down. I'm not going to let you sit down unless we're sitting. All full audience participation. Commandment number? Gimme, gimme, gimme. Don't covet. All right, that's enough exercise for today. You guys can sit. Now you know the Ten Commandments. Not the Ten Suggestions, the Ten Commandments. This is what I do to teach the kids. Miss Molina's smiling. I made her smile. That's great. Thou knowest the commandments. Thou knows the commandments. Verse 19, you know the commandments. The Apostle John wrote to uh, the, the early church, I've written these things to you not because you don't know what they are, but because I've written the truth unto you because you know it. And Jesus tells this fellow, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. One man, one woman for life. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. Yes, sir. And, and he says, oh, uh, master, I've observed all these things from my youth. Verse 21, Jesus, beholding him, loved him. 
Do you know that Jesus knew that this man would walk away and reject him? And the compassion in his heart was undeniable. And Jesus loved this individual. Jesus loved him. And the the text clearly says he loved him. And he said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor. Thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross, go down death row, and follow me. And we sat at that saying, went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And being an ancient Israelite, this man knew the commandments. He was careful to quote to him only the commandments uh, from what, what is called the second table of the law, addressing how we te- uh, teach and treat each other. Remember the first tablet, that all refers to uh, the way we treat God, right? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Don't say, oh my Lord, oh my God, anything like that, right? You don't take the name of God in vain, unless you're talking like David did in Psalms, where he said, oh my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let my enemies triumph over me. That's Psalm 25. He wasn't taking God's name in vain by saying, oh, my God. He meant that. And so um, we, we know that um, we should treat God right in the first table. And in the second table, a lot, of, a lot of these Ten Commandments, they apply to us today because they, they are for our function in regular human life. And the, these, the, these uh, commandments in the second table of the law, we know that each of them are pure, they're just, and they're good. The world would be a much better place if everyone lived by just the five commandments that Jesus uh, mentioned here. Of course, number one is the most important. God is number one, right? God is number one. And if people really saw it that way, uh, we wouldn't have to struggle with the other nine, right? And so uh, God is number one, but even just these five, the world would be a better place if everyone lived by the five commandments. And he says, Master, all these things I've kept from my youth. Ever since I was a teenager, ever since I was a little kid, I've not stolen from anyone. I've never committed adultery. Philippians 3, Paul wrote as a lost man, he thought he kept all the commandments as a religious Jew. And he wrote of his thinking at that time that he was concerning the law, blameless. Yet in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave the real meaning of the law. It goes to the heart. It goes to the heart and not just to actions. You can have a heart filled with adultery even if you never commit adultery. You can have a heart filled with murder even if you never kill somebody. You can have a heart uh, that steals even if you never steal. Because God looks at the heart even as he does the actions. And the man could have responded and should have responded. There's no way I can keep the law of God completely. I need a savior. But instead he said, I will be my own savior. And Jesus was filled with such compassion for this man because his life is so empty. And he knew that he was the solution. This rich man had climbed to the top of the ladder of success only to realize that he had climbed the wrong ladder. And so instead of challenging the man's fulfillment of the law, which Jesus had every right to do, he, t- he took him further down, down on his own path. So you want fulfillment. And so you want uh, salvation by doing for God. Then here, do it all. And so Jesus wanted this man to see the futility of finding fulfillment and salvation through actions, but the man would not see it. He also did not choose to love God more than his wealth, even though Jesus specifically promised him treasure and uh, uh, all these things in heaven. He was more interested in earthly treasure than God's heavenly treasure. And this man was essentially an idolater. And wealth was his God instead of the true God of Scripture. He put money first. 
And this man had a materialistic nature, just like many of us can. And he had an orientation towards works righteousness. He asked, what shall I do? What shall I do? And if we really want to do the works of God, it must begin with depending on Jesus, whom the Father has sent. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Depend on the Lord Jesus. And we know that Jesus' purpose wasn't to make the man sad, but to remind him that he could only be happy by doing what Jesus told him to do. And so the rich man went away sorrowful. Many people have almost everything, and yet they are sorrowful. Verse 23, Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. And many times we're like the disciples. We have a hard time seeing how riches could stop us from God. We tend to think that the uh, uh, riches uh, could only bring blessing and good. And the words of Jesus amazed the disciples because they assumed that wealth was always a sign of God's blessing and his favor. And in the next verses, or next couple of verses, they're saying, who then can be saved? Who, who can be rescued from the wrath of God? If the wealthy among them, which included the super spiritual Pharisees and the scribes, if they were unworthy of heaven, what chance do we have? What hope is there for a poor man? Men are saved through God's gifts of grace, mercy, and faith. Ephesians chapter 2. Nothing we do earns salvation for us. It is the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty and their utter inability to do anything to justify themselves because he is a holy God. And the rich man so often is blind to his spiritual poverty because he's proud of his accomplishments. He's proud of himself and he is as likely to humble himself before God as a camel is to enter in successfully through the eye of a tiny needle. And biblically speaking, we have the examples like Zacchaeus and Joseph Arimathea and Barnabas who were rich men that humbled themselves. So I'm not saying it's hopeless. There is hope for the rich man if he'll but humble himself. Verse 28, 28 uh, Peter began to say unto Jesus, Lo, we left all and have followed thee. Uh, what do we get? <laughs> what do we get? Notice now our reward and the solution to the problem of riches. And so, in contrast to the rich young ruler, uh, the disciples had left all to follow Jesus. And, of course, Mr. Loudmouth, Peter, uh, he, he, he has a typical question coming from him. Is there a special honor for us? Of course there's a special honor for the disciples, right? They have a special place in judgment, possibly in the administration of the millennial kingdom. The apostles also had the honor of helping to provide a singular foundation for the church in Ephesians chapter 2. And they'll have a special tribute in the New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21. Plus, there'll be a universal honor for anyone who sacrifices uh, for Jesus' sake. Whatever is given up for him uh, is going to be returned to him many times over in addition to eternal life. Look at verse 30. He shall receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. With persecutions. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer, shall suffer persecution. And in the world to come, eternal life. And so, hundredfold is not obviously, obviously not literal. Otherwise, Jesus promised a hundred physical mothers and a hundred wives, which he did not. Jesus likely referred to the family of God and the large amount of believers that we can now fellowship and break bread with, right? 
And so, but many that are first shall be last and the last first. This was the qualifying remark for the disciples' reward. Many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. All who sacrifice for the Lord will be rewarded, but God's way and timing of rewarding may not match up with man's way and timing of being rewarded. When God rewards, expect the unexpected. God possesses both the right and the ability to reward in fair and unusual ways. Verse 32 says, They were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And here their fearless leader walks in front of them and Jesus went before them. They were amazed. They were scared because Jesus wasn't supposed to go to Jerusalem. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. He said, Look, behold, we go to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, that's me, I'm going to be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes. They shall condemn me to death and they're going to deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him and they shall scourge him. Uh, The good news is that after three days I rise again. But the disciples weren't listening to all that. They they thought that their conquering Messiah was going to die and that's all they heard. They heard the scourging and the spitting and the disgrace that their Messiah would go through and they sensed the danger of their mission. Jesus was a wanted man and yet he was first in line to head to Jerusalem. The courage of Jesus is especially amazing in light of our frequent cowardice as Christians, afraid to stand out for Jesus. He wasn't afraid to stand out for us. You know, the the pictures, uh, the portraits by the Impressionist painters and wherever else, kind of um, the Renaissance painters of Jesus, this effeminate Jesus, hang on a cross with like a loincloth about him. You know, he was hung like a piece of meat. He was murdered for you. He was completely naked. He didn't have any shame or qualms about bearing himself to the world, not on purpose. He didn't, he didn't like, you know, like uh, desire this for himself. He despised the shame, Hebrews 12. But he underwent the most painful and most humiliating kind of death for you and for me. And if he could die for me, can I not live for him? Delivery to the Gentiles reveals that Jesus will be held in contempt by his own countrymen, for the Gentiles are the last people... Uh, to whom the Messiah of the people of God should be handed over. And significantly, Jesus mentioned the shame of his suffering. He suffered most terrible emotional humiliation in his death, and it was done out of love for Peter and for Barry and for Mrs. Turner, for Diana, for Yassine, for Jacob, for Kevin, for Miss Sandra, for, for Andrew, for Jay, for everybody, for everybody. And Acts 541 says they departed from the presence of that council and the disciples rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. The disciples rejoiced in the shame itself because Jesus didn't rejoice in the shame itself. He despised the shame, but he embraced the suffering and said, and really, they they rejoiced most of all in identifying with Jesus and gladly suffered shame if they had to. And today we can do the same. Verse 35 through 37, James and John, the sons of thunder, they picked the worst opportunity and timing for this because they were uh, talking about who was the greatest in the previous chapter. They they still had this fresh in their minds. They, They walked up to Jesus and they said, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Jesus was talking about them and them. And they were in their childishness. They were also thinking about themselves. And so... He said, what can I do for you? What would ye that I should do for you? 
And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. And so James and John were requesting positions of status. But true greatness in God's kingdom derives from humility. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And despite the continual declaration of his coming suffering, the disciples still thought that when Jesus got to Jerusalem, he would establish a kingdom. And here, James and John asked for positions of status in that kingdom, which they anticipated would be installed soon. And we know that the seat of honor was on the right, and the place of honor, or second most honor, was on the left, according to 1 Kings 2 and Psalm 110. They asked for, no doubt, the two most prestigious places in Jesus' administration. James and John feel confident that they will be the greatest, and so watch for Jesus to confirm their opinion by appointing them to high positions now, right? Watch this. Uh, Verse 38, Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. You have no idea what you're talking about. Can you drink of the cup that I'm drinking? To sit on my right hand, verse 40, and my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Jesus prophesied their pain. He said, yeah, you're going to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. You say, yeah, we can. We can do it. And he says, you will suffer. James was the first apostle to be martyred. According to tradition, uh, the tradition, James, uh, James was the first uh, apostle to be martyred, and John was never martyred, though he survived an attempted murder by immersion in a vat of boiling oil, according to reasonably reliable church history. And the apostle John was then exiled to an island, the island of Patmos, where God instructed him to write the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ according to the Apostle John. And the commentator Lane writes, in popular Greek usage, the vocabulary of baptism was used to speak of being overwhelmed by a disaster or a danger. And a similar metaphorical usage of submersion is present in Scripture as well, uh, according to Psalm 42, 93, and 69. Uh, Perhaps when Jesus said this, a big smile came over the faces of James and John because he said, look at us, look, he's going to give us the right hand and the left hand. However, it is doubtful that Jesus smiled because he knew what kind of baptism this was. He knew it was a baptism of suffering. In verse 42, Jesus called them over to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But, but so shall it not be among you. Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto you, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus describes true greatness. Those who exercise power or authority in the church today as lording it over others still don't understand Jesus' leadership and life. Plainly, the church is not to operate in the way the world does. Whosoever desires to be great among you shall be your slave. The kingdom community, in the kingdom community, uh, status and money and popularity are not the prerequisites for leadership. Humble service is the only prerequisite as displayed by the ministry and life of Jesus. Many people are in the ministry for what they can get out of it. Maybe for the paycheck, right? Or they compromise their doctrine to get a crowd. He is the one who stands in the place of guilty sinners and offers himself, Jesus does, as a substitute. The word ransom speaks of a liberation, uh, which refers to a servitude or imprisonment from one uh, from one which man, a man cannot free himself. He's shackled to the purpose of God and to his plans. 
Verse 46, on the way to Jerusalem, a blind man is healed. They came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, there was a great amount of people, and this blind Barnabas, Barnabas means son of Timaeus. That's why it's uh, followed right by that phrase, Bar Timaeus, Bar, that just means son. And so they were very creative with names back then. They just, son of Timaeus, Bar Timaeus, that's your name. The son of some dude named Timaeus. And he starts crying for Jesus. And in verse 51, Jesus answered and said to him, what wilt thou, what do you want? What can I do for you? Lord, that I might receive my sight. He says, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. The title Rabboni is a strengthened form of rabbi, which means my Lord, my master. And when Bartimaeus said this, he was, he, he was expressing his humble submission towards Jesus. The specific nature of Bartimaeus' request is a good example for our prayers. Have mercy on me is general, but his prayer moved from the general to the specific, that I might receive my sight. Have mercy on me that I may receive my sight. The faith of the blind man saved him because it was the specific kind of faith. Notice, it was faith that determined to reach Jesus. He cried out all the more. It was faith that knew who Jesus was, the son of David. It was faith that humbly came to Jesus, have mercy on me. It was a faith that humbly submitted to Jesus, Rabboni. It was faith that could tell Jesus what he wanted, that I might receive my sight. And now healed and rescued from hell, he was saved from the wrath of God. Blind Barnabas decided to follow Jesus. And the way of Jesus became his way. And this was especially significant when we consider where Jesus was going. He was going to the cross. He was going to die for Brother Mark, and for Brother Andrew, and for Brother Kevin, and for all of us in this room. He was going to Jerusalem, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, where a cross waited for him. And Bartimaeus must have figured, now that I have my sight, I want to always look upon Jesus. That's pretty good. What therefore God hath joined asunder, or together, what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Immediately, Bartimaeus received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. 